the hard shoulder on News Talk with Nissan Subscribe and Drive. No deposit, no compromise, no fuss. Find out more at Nissan.ie. Now it is that time of the week. It's Wednesday and John Kelleher is with me for another edition of The Last Post when John tells us about the life and times of somebody who has passed away, somebody you've probably never heard of and somebody you probably should have heard of. And John, this week you are talking about Peter Warner. Who was Peter Warner? Very interesting man. With a, He led a very, very active life, mostly as you'll uh, learn, I guess, on the sea. He was a, um, a seafarer, Australian seafarer. And his his life was almost, I suppose, dominated by one extraordinary event, which was his discovery of six shipwrecked boys, young teenage boys who had survived, to- boys from Tonga, who had survived for a year and a half on an uninhabited South Pacific island. Wow. OK, so Lord of the Flies type stuff. Listen, before we get there, exactly. uh, let's go back in time a little bit. Uh, tell me about his, his young life. Well, he was born, Peter Warner was born in Melbourne in 1931. His father was a very well-known businessman and politician. Um, he actually was a government minister for the Liberal Party in the, in the state of Victoria uh, several times. But he had a thriving manufacturing business and uh, a media empire. Uh, he was one of the wealthiest men in Australia. And he expected Peter, his son, to follow him into the family business. But Peter, who was passionate about sailing, had other ideas. He just wasn't interested. And when he was only 17, he ran away uh, to join a, a ship's crew. He returned then about a year later, and his father insisted that he attend law school at the University of Melbourne. So after six weeks, he ran away again. <laughs> and he spent the next three years working on uh, Norwegian and Swedish ships he actually passed the Swedish master mariner's exam. So he was able to skipper even quite large, um, you know, seagoing vessels. Anyway, he eventually returned home and he worked for his father during the day. And he, he then studied uh, accounting um, at night. And, and that's the end of his story. He settles down, he gets married, he has a family and becomes an accountant. Well, not quite so. <laughs> this is a restless man. <laughs> he got engaged all right in 1955, but he told Justine, who was his fiance, he said he wanted one last fling, which for him was to go to sea for five months, which he did. And he returned just two days before the wedding. He uh, just made it. Um, but they got married and then they spent a, they spent a five month honeymoon on board a cargo ship oh, sailing uh, from Australia, between Australia and Japan. Wow. All right. And yeah, he, each to he their own. A, he, yeah, he just he couldn't get away from the sea. He loved it. He was a very competitive sailor. Um, he thrived on competition. And in the early 60s, he won the very prestigious uh, annual Sydney to Hobart race three times. He competed against Rupert Murdoch, uh, who was a friend, a pal. And then in 1963, I think, yeah, he became, in 1963, he became, he was fourth in the Trans-Pacific Yacht Race, which is over 2,000 miles. Uh, it's a race between California and Hawaii. Okay, so this guy, he didn't just love the sea, he he was a, an accomplished sailor as well. Did like, how, how did he turn a hand to at making a bit of money out of the sea? 
He he bought in 1965 when he was in his mid 30s. He bought uh, several cray fishing boats, uh, which he operated around Tasmania. But the grounds, uh, the fishing grounds around Australia were becoming overfished. So he headed further east to Tonga and he requested the right to fish in Tongan waters. However, that request was uh, turned down by the by the king. Okay. So he was returning from Tonga uh, and he was happened to be looking through his binoculars at a rocky, uninhabited island, which is called Atta, about five miles away. And he noticed a burnt patch of ground uh, among green foliage. And he didn't, he couldn't understand how a fire would have started on an uninhabited island in the tropics. So he decided that he'd investigate further. Okay. And what did he find? Well, I think he uh, could tell you, in fact, in his own words. All right. Uh, let's, let's take a listen to him then describing what he found. In close to the island, the lookout on the mast said, I hear a human voice. I didn't believe it was a human voice. I said, oh, that's the birds. You're crazy. It's not a human voice. So we went closer and closer, slowed down, and we saw this brown figure coming down, jumping down to the rocks and into the sea and doing a very nice swim out towards us. So. That this is this is strange. This island, maybe they keep it as a prison for the worst criminals, and uh, cast them out here. It's, we loaded the, the, the rifles, ready to uh, for whatever would happen. Then this young man swam alongside, and said in perfect English, "I am one of six castaways. We think we have been here for one and a half years." Wow! What what an incredible. <laughs> Story. Tell me more about it. Well, he he was still Peter Warner was still suspicious, you know. So he he got the boy to give him the names of the the other five boys and himself. And Warner then radioed uh, Nukualofa, the capital of Tonga, and he asked the operator, the shortwave operator, to contact by phone St Andrews College, uh, where they had the boys had uh, been studying. And he gave them he gave him the names of the six boys and he, he was still kind of reluctant to let them onto the boat because he, thinking they could be dangerous convicts. But anyway, after 20 minutes, the uh, radio operator came back on the line and he was he was crying. He was in floods of tears. Uh, he declared it's true. These these boys have been given up for dead. Funerals have been held for them. And now you have found them. This is a miracle. Wow. Wow. I mean, I know we're here to talk about Peter Warner. Tell me a little bit more, though, if you can, about these boys, these six boys and this adventure. <laughs> well, yeah, they apparently in June of the previous year, uh, the, the six Tongan boys who were boarding school students, uh, they were aged between 13 and 16. They, they'd stolen this 24 foot boat and gone off for what was intended to be uh, a maritime joyride. But only a few hours into their trip, a fierce wind came up and broke the sail uh, and their rudder. And it effectively set them adrift for eight very stormy days. Finally, they spotted uh, this rocky island of Atta, uh, which is about 100 miles south of the main island of Tonga. And it's volcanic in origin, heavily forested. Uh, 
maybe a total land area of, I think, one and a half square kilometres. Um, it had once been home to 300, about 350 people. But in 1863, 150 of those had been kidnapped by a British slave trader. And the Tongan king had relocated the rest of them to another island for protection. So it had been uninhabited since then. All right. OK, so that, like, that's a long time to be uninhabited. I assume there was nothing left really for them to live on. Like, how did they survive? Well, with, with great difficulty, but with great organisation, they were really impressive. Um, sort of a Lord of the Flies in some ways. Uh, they survived on raw fish on coconuts, on bird's eggs. And then after about three months, they discovered the ruins of a village from the previous inhabitants. And they, among amid the rubble, they discovered a machete, uh, they discovered edible plants, and they discovered a flock of, by now, feral chickens that were descendants of the previous chickens <laughs> the, the previous inhabitants had left behind. And they managed to start a fire which they were able to keep burning for the the rest of their stay. They built a makeshift settlement, thatched roof, hut, a garden, and even for recreation, they had a badminton court and an open-air gym, complete with a bench press. I mean, these these were resourceful guys. You you mentioned Lord of the Flies, and I mean, I always think of, you know, the conch, and whoever had that shell was the boss. Was there a boss on the island? How did they organise themselves? I I think they were pretty democratic, uh, um, the guitar might have been the, the conch shell, but Tongan <laughs> culture apparently is very collective. It's in their nature and tradition to look after and care for each other. So there was very there was none of the kind of murderous savagery that you uh, you get in Lord of the Flies. Mm. Uh, what they did was they established a very strict duty roster, alternating between rest periods, gathering food and being on the lookout for passing ships. They did actually see four ships, but none of the four saw them. Um, And if an argument broke out, this was interesting. The the antagonists had to walk to opposite ends of the island and return like hours later, ideally having cooled off. Getting to the opposite end of the island wasn't a simple stroll. This is a really rocky, you know, island. One of the boys, by the way, broke his leg and they made a splint for him and his leg healed perfectly. And then, as I say, they had a guitar. They made a guitar out of the debris from their from their boat and they sang and they wrote songs. And apparently they began and ended every day with songs and a prayer. Oh, well, it, it, it like it is an absolutely amazing story like and Peter Warner to go back to him for a moment the person we're talking about I mean this is the guy who rescued him he must have been a hero in Tonga a total hero I mean they they he was absolutely adored particularly by the families who thought they were bereaved so the king uh, who had earlier denied him fishing rights reversed that decision pronto <laughs> <laughs> and as it happens the two of them became great pals in, in later life. But the owner of the boat that the boys had stolen, he was, he wasn't quite so uh, generous, so magnanimous. He had the boys arrested. He did but not. But then he agreed to drop the charge. <laughs> he did, yeah. But Well, he'd, he'd lost a valuable boat. Oh, I know. Um, but read the room. Read the room. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he actually agreed to drop the charges after 
Peter Warder offered to compensate him. Yeah, I mean, I, I, like obviously, if this happened today, it would be news all around the world. I assume it was big news even then, even though news travelled a little it, more slowly. Absolutely, it was it was big news all around the world. Australia was completely captivated by the the story, although the media tended to sort of portray it as a Lord of the Flies scenario, something that Peter Warner and the boys consistently uh, and in later life, uh, you know, uh, contradicted all the time. So uh, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation actually sent Peter Warner and the boys back to the island to recreate aspects of their uh, experience for a film crew. And then there were other documentaries and, and plenty of newspaper features. And, but yeah, go on. Interestingly, Karen, what Peter Warner did was he actually moved to Tonga. Okay, he must have fallen in love with the place because he moved with his family to Tonga and stayed there for thirty years before finally returning to Australia. And by the way, he he hired all of the six boys, each one of them, as crew members on his cray fishing boats. Okay, so he hired them all. They all ended up for working for him. I suppose they owed him a little bit after he compensated that <laughs> boat owner and getting them <laughs> off the hook. Um, uh, tell me a little bit then about his later life. He obviously, you know, he, he lived then as a fisherman living in Tonga. Yeah, uh, he, he, he settled well there? Yeah, settled well there and uh, eventually came back to Australia. He converted um, in 1990 to the Baha'i faith and he later gave up commercial fishing and started a company that, that harvested and sold uh, nuts, tree nuts. And he wrote memoirs. He wrote three different books of memoirs, the second of which was called Ocean of Light. And it detailed his uh, experience with the shipwrecked boys. All right. And and he, obviously, because we're talking about him, he has uh, recently passed away. Yeah, it's, 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 it's sad in a way. But the sea, which, which obviously featured so prominently throughout his life, also played a part in his death just a fortnight ago um, at the age of 90. His daughter confirmed uh, that he was out sailing in an area that he knew very well, had known for decades, when he was swept overboard by a, a rogue wave. And his, his companion on the boat was also swept overboard and tried to get him to shore, succeeded in getting him to shore, but attempts to revive him were were unsuccessful. Oh, well, it's, it's a, a sad, but I suppose a fitting end uh, to the life of Peter Warner. What an incredible story and the, the story of those boys, those Tongan boys, incredible as well. John, as always, an absolute pleasure and thanks a million for putting all of that together. You, li- you can listen back to uh, The Last Post on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. All previous editions of The Last Post with John Kelleher can be found there as well. That is our lot for today's Hard Shoulder. My thanks to everybody who got in touch. Thanks to the production team. Off the ball are up next and I'll be back tomorrow from four and I'll let you go with a little bit of music. John mentioned uh, that the boys, the Tongan boys on the island that they fashioned a guitar out of debris they wrote their own songs and that is how they played themselves to sleep at night well we've got a clip of one of these surviving boys now in his 70s playing his guitar and singing one of those very songs I'll talk to you tomorrow Mom